0: Well good morning church, good to have you here today. We are continuing our series this morning that we're calling Destined and in this series we're not just talking about how we can f- fulfill our, our individual destinies, but how we can also live out and step into the destiny that God has for us as a community, as a church and last week we talked about God's destiny for His church is for her to have impact. How how God longs for His bride to to be useful in society, to be like the hot therapeutic healing water of Aeropolis or the cold refreshing rejuvenating water of Colossae. But what we learned is what God what's making what makes God sick. He kind of gets choked up even. Yeah, uh, what makes him like. His gag reflex trigger is when his church is useless and unappealing and has no impact. When his church is like the lukewarm water of Laodicea. And so that was last week. And we learned how God longs for us to embrace this destiny of being people who together, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make a difference in this world, who together accomplish something great. And that leads us into our series continuing today. That's what we're talking about this morning. talking about what it looks like for us to be destined for greatness. And more specifically, what does greatness look like in the kingdom of God, in the eyes of our heavenly Father? Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible today, pull it out, grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. If you're using a pew Bible, we're on page 822, Mark chapter 10. As you turn there and you find your place, let me ask you this. Have you ever dreamed about being great? And if so, what did you dream about being great at? In fact, just for fun, let's do this. Turn to the person next to you and just take about 30 seconds between the two of you and share one thing that you, you dreamed about when you were a kid. Maybe you, you laid awake at night or you imagined or you fantasized about, about being great at something. Um, share one thing you dreamed about being great at as a child. It could be something that you've accomplished or something that like, you never had a chance even to accomplish but, but it was something you thought about back then. So you ready? You understand the assignment? 30 seconds. Ready, go. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so some of you are still holding on to your dreams. You're still hoping and dreaming that maybe they'll come true. Some of you have accomplished those. When when I was a kid, I was about all things basketball. And so I, I dreamed um, of being a great basketball player. I just had constant imaginary moments in my driveway and such. And I grew up in, in sort of the heart of the Michael Jordan championship era, right during the time when Jordan won... NBA titles three in a row and he went, he did it twice he three-peated twice and and the cel- celebration during that that era and the acknowledgement of MJ's greatness it was widespread but perhaps the pinnacle of the celebration of this great athlete came in 1992 when Gatorade launched a very famous commercial called be like Mike you remember this commercial be like Mike? Now, some of you will remember it. It has a catchy little tune that goes with it. But here's what I want you to do this morning I want you to listen to the lyrics of this, this famous television ad. It kind of featured Michael Jordan and this little kid who, obviously, in the commercial were made to believe someday hopes to be as great as Michael Jordan. It says, Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove, like Mike. If I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. I was going to play it on piano, but that's (laughs) kind of been done. Like Mike, Mike, if I could be... You see, this commercial, it was so captivating, it sort of swept the nation. It was genius because it acknowledged, I believe, and tapped into this, this deeply held desire that every single one of us has to be great. To be good at something, to be noticed and to stand out from the pack and to be acknowledged and to live a life of significance in this world. You see, every single one of us long for that. And you maybe uh, do not have any desire at all to be great at basketball. Maybe that's the last thing you've dreamed about. But I guarantee you this, every single person in this room has dreamed about being great at something. And in our passage today... Jesus bumps up against this desire in his disciples and he uses what is a misguided request to teach us and to begin to reshape our thinking about what true greatness looks like, what greatness looks like in the eyes of God. Mark chapter 10, we're starting in verse 35, we'll jump right in. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that's to Jesus. Teacher, they said, But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, as we get into this... this Sort of strange interchange. I want to talk for just a minute about these two brothers who come up to Jesus with this request. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. It's funny because this very same story is also told in the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew's account, he gives us just a little bit more detail. And in his version, it actually isn't James and John who make this request. In Matthew's version, does anyone know who comes and asks Jesus this question? Yeah, it's their mother. It says, mom comes. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. So in Mark, we get sort of the abbreviated version. And it says, "And kneeling down, she asked for, asked a favor of him. Now, what's interesting to note about this woman is that she is related to Jesus. Did you know that? This is a woman who actually has like formal family ties with Jesus. Does anyone know how she 's related to him? She is his aunt. she is actually the sister of jesus mother Mary. Her name is Salome. We know this from a number of other uh, verses kind of put together in the Bible, but this is Auntie Salome, which makes what which makes James and John these two disciples. Jesus' cousins, the the whole discipleship thing is filled with nepotism, apparently. We didn't know it, but it is. These guys got kind of lobbed in as cousins. And so what we have in this instance, in this moment, in this interchange, is an aunt and some cousins coming to Jesus and trying to use their relationship with him to advance and improve their future status and position. By the way, this was a very typical practice in the ancient world. If someone in your family, struck it big, became a person of prominence, you would almost assuredly try to ride their coattails into a better life. You would attempt to use them to achieve a higher social standing or a place of greatness or a reputation of of prestige. Friends, this interchange, this request is Kingdom of the World Advancement Strategy 101. Very common, very expected. And this is how it went how can I use you to get more for me? What do you have to offer me? How can I leverage leverage whatever I have, whatever situation I'm in, whatever my relations are, whatever gifts, abilities, fortunes I've been given for my increased power, prestige, position, popularity? You see, that is the system of this world. That's how you become great in this world you find ways of moving yourself up you do whatever you need to do as long as you're still climbing and these guys they're actually so shameless about climbing the societal ladder that they come to jesus and they say hey jesus what can you do for us and they ask jesus this question right in the middle of a very sensitive season if you look at the passage right before this passage you can look back later Jesus, what he tells them is he says, hey guys, we're headed to Jerusalem now. When we get there, I'm going to be arrested, scourged, scourged, mocked, beaten, and crucified. And the guys are like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, that's great. What can you do for us? You kind of read it and you're thinking, really? Do these guys have like zero self-awareness or what? But that's kind of the, the moment here. What can you do for me, Jesus? You see, I, we, we really like you, but we want to use you to get... As much as we can for us, because it 's all about us, and then Jesus does an interesting thing. He responds to this outlandish sort of insensitive request with a with a question. He asks, "Can you drink the cup I am going to drink?" and, and the cup in the scriptures is, is never really good news. If you look back in the Bible, the cup most often references Uh, suffering or torture the wrath of god the cup when you're going to endure a cup it's not generally like a cup of blessing it's 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 more associated with with wrath or hardship and furthermore in the jewish culture when you drink a person's cup it means can you drink every drop what jesus is asking here is can you take in everything that i'm going to take in can you follow me all along the way Or are you just looking for the end result? And I have to pause and say, I think that's a question Jesus might ask many of us as his followers today. I think if Jesus were here today, he might ask us this What's the nature of our relationship? Can you drink the cup? I am going to drink. Are you just in this for the glory? Are you just in this for the reward? Are you just in it for the ticket to heaven you'll get someday? Or or do you truly want to follow me? And are you willing to walk the path and live the life that I am calling you to live? And just to illustrate the ignorance of the disciples, the complete obliviousness of their thought process in this moment... How unaware they are of who Jesus is and what He's about and their own aspirations and motivations. Mark tells us that these guys say yes. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You see, Jesus is talking here about the suffering He is going to endure. He's talking about the kind of brutal death he will die and the road to greatness and glory that he will walk. It's not an easy road. It's not a fun road. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Such confidence there. You see, what these guys don't understand is that the guys on Jesus' right and left are ultimately going to be two people Hanging on crosses. You see, that's what's funny about this this interchange. That's what's sad about it. That's what's striking about it as we read it. They are so confused. These are the disciples of Jesus. These are two of the inner twelve. These are his cousins. And they are so confused about what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like that they are accidentally asking for suffering and torture and crucifixion. And Jesus says, you guys have no clue. But he does acknowledge that at some point they will get it. That at some point they will engage the road of sacrifice. At some point they will begin to seek service instead of selfishness. But for now, Jesus knows they still have much to learn about what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, They became indignant, displeased, angry, upset with James and John. You see, here's one thing about our approach to greatness. Whatever it is, it will impact the community that we're part of. It will rub off on and affect the people closest to us and those who are around us. That's exactly what happens here. The James and John attitude doesn't just stay with James and John. You see, their willingness to try and use Jesus for self-promotion, it's contagious. And now the other guys are saying, hey, wait a minute. Why do they get to have places of prominence and not us? Friends, hear this. Self-advancement in a community only breeds more self-advancement in that community. It's like poison. To the culture of a church this is why when groups of people are together and they're together for a period of time culture gets created this is how it happens culture gets created when when people come together and they form a group and i like to think about culture as simply the personality of a group of people over time, as they've been together over a period of time. And you've seen this before. You've come into a group, maybe you're new, maybe you're fresh to a group, and there's a group that's established, they've been together for a while, and in a fairly short amount of time, you can tell what kind of a personality that group has. You just sense it, you feel it, you hear it. And and in a very short amount of time, you can say, these are the kinds of folks that, these are people who, right, are generous, are judgmental, or joy-filled, or worried, or fearful, or self-focused, or others-focused. And friends, how that happens is that the attitudes and actions of people in that group have bled out over time and influenced the other people in that group. And pretty soon, that group has a personality of its own. A culture has been created. Here's the question. What kind of culture are you helping to create in our church? What kind of culture, what kind of personality are you helping to form right here at CNBC? What are the things you say? What are the things you talk about in this community? How do you live as a part of this church? Because you might just think, you know, hey, I just go here. I just go here. But the truth is this. Intentionally or unintentionally, you are part of shaping the culture of our church. What kind of culture are you helping us, this church, this little bride of Christ in northwest Portland to have? See, in this story, James and John... They've adopted the worldly system of pursuing greatness through self-promotion. And now it's spreading. It's contaminating the entire group of 12. And this is where Jesus steps in. Verse 42. Jesus called them together. Huddle up, boys. And he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, I want to pause right there, and and I just want you to understand, Jesus is simply describing the world in which these guys live. It's the Greco-Roman world, we talked a little bit about it last week, I'll say a few more things this morning. This is a world that was completely built and centered on the hierarchy of societal status. See, it was very important that people were clear on this because who was at the top and who was at the bottom, who was up high and who was down low, was absolutely fundamental to how this society worked and functioned. Cicero, the great Roman philosopher, some of you have heard of him before, he wrote these famous words, rank must be preserved. In other words, your greatness in This society, your value, your significance is determined by where you rate on the societal ladder and where you stood in this society was expressed in a lot of ways, a lot of the same ways that it's expressed in our world today. The clothes you wore is just one example. They were a significant statement about your status, about where you were, about how great you were in this culture. You see, if you were a free man in the Roman Empire, you could wear what was called a freed man's cap. And this cap, it was a very physical expression. I'm not a slave. See, slaves were at the bottom. They were at the very bottom of the barrel. A free man was a step up from a slave, and you could tell he was a free man because he wore a free man's cap. If you were a male citizen of Rome and you were a a citizen of, of, of Rome itself, you were a notch above a free man. And when you turned about 14, you could begin to wear what was called the toga virilis. The toga of manhood. And this says, yeah, I'm not just a free man. I'm a citizen of this great empire. If you were an equestrian, this is kind of a high-level aristocrat, not only could you wear the toga, but you were also allowed to put gold rings on your fingers. Now, We kind of take the freedom to wear whatever we want for granted. But in this society, you weren't allowed to wear certain things unless you had achieved a certain status. And this is one of those things. You would not just wear around gold rings unless you had kind of risen to this level, unless you were an equestrian. Equestrians were sometimes called the Order of the Rings. Not the Lord of the Rings. That's a different thing. But but it sort of had the same sort of mysterious, sort of weird thing going on. Um, By the way... This is exactly what's going on in the New Testament in the book of James. Some of you will remember this. James is writing a letter to the New Testament church and he's talking about this very thing. Here's what he says. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. You see, when James says this, his readers know exactly what he's talking about, that he's talking about someone who is of fairly high societal status, someone at least, because of the ring, is an equestrian, right? And James says, hey, if this person comes in, along with someone who's, who's poor, and you give the equestrian special treatment, which, by the way, by Roman law, you were supposed to do, James says, if you do that, if you function that way in the church, then you are doing evil. That's evil. You see what the church is doing here, friends? The church is adopting the teaching of Jesus in a very practical way, and they are challenging the Roman system of who's important, of who's great, of what kinds of things really make a person worth admiring. And they're saying, for God, there's a different system. And the church is taking a stand. If you were a senator in the senatorial class, like way up there in the Greco-Roman Empire, you not only wore a toga, you not only wore rings, you got to have a big purple stripe on your toga because purple was the color of royalty. It was this, this statement like, I am way up there in society. I'm like royalty in this society. And, and we use this, this very imagery in our world today. It's why the number one color for our royal family kids camp is the color purple. And the statement we're making as a church is we're taking these, these children who some might see as the lowest people in our society and we're saying to Jesus, to us, to the people of God, they are like royalty. They matter just as much as people who are like living way up on the hill. Right? That's our statement. It's, that, this color purple just shouts that. And the examples go on and on. All sorts of examples that that would let you know where someone stood in the society. The seats they were offered at a party or production. The titles they were given. The stuff they owned. All these things, indicators. Where are you? How important are you? How significant are you? How great are you? Now, you guys can make the transition yourself. um, The transition from like, what are the things in our society that make these kind of statements, right? You can all think of A million examples on your own. But let me give you just kind of a fun example of how this plays out in our world and how sometimes these worldly society symbols even seep into our own way of thinking and understanding the world. I had a a good friend, um, a colleague of mine, a buddy of mine I worked with back in California who's actually one of the pastors of our church. And he and his wife were a one-car family. Because of just budget limitations and such, they were only able to afford one car, they had one minivan, they had three kids, and so in order to leave the minivan at home and give his wife access to transportation with the three kids, my pastor friend would quite often ride his skateboard to work. And that works in California because it's fairly dry there. But he would admit to us, and you'd see him, he would be driving to work, and you'd be like, oh, there he is, one of the pastors from our church, skateboarding to work. And he wasn't the youth pastor. Like, you expect the youth pastor to do that. He was like one of the main pastors. Like, okay. And he would admit sometimes in staff meeting that he would people would pass him and honk and wave, and he would feel kind of silly. And he would even say, you know, it's kind of weird. I, I'm a like a grown man with three kids, and I'm skateboarding. I'm a pastor, I'm skateboarding to work. It feels, it's a little bit humbling. It's a little bit kind of embarrassing sometimes. But then all of a sudden, everything changed. Uh, His wife's grandmother passed away and she was a woman of significant means. And so some of her possessions got divvied out to the family. And all of a sudden, my buddy and his wife inherited her grandmother's car and it just happened to be a Lexus. So overnight... My buddy went from skateboarding to work, his wife still needed the van for the kids, to driving a Lexus, and it became this big joke on our staff, you know, like, wow, how are we paying this guy, he's driving this really nice Lexus, so he's cruising to, to work at his Lexus, and he would, and we laughed about it, but he would even say, you know what's funny about it, is that I used, as silly as I used to feel skateboarding to work, I feel equally as important when I drive that Lexus. He's like, there's just something about a Lex... He's like, there's no, it's no wonder people buy these things. They really make you feel special. Every time I'm driving it, and I think, man, I must be somebody. I'm driving a Lexus. And he's like, I didn't even do anything to earn this thing, but I feel really great when I'm driving it. Just this, this idea that society pushes in, and even when we don't want to, when we've, even when we don't have intentions to, we start to buy in on what it is that makes... Someone great and what it is that doesn't. And friends, here's the deal. We may not have togas or rings or purple sashes, but there are things in our society. There are positions and achievements and gifts and talents and even material possessions that we are told make people great that help us rate how important and significant they are. And friends, this creates pressure. Pressure for us to seek after and give our lives to attaining those things to to find our greatness in the things of this world to buy into the world system of becoming great in the same way that James and John do you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know the system of the world. You know how it works. You know how greatness is achieved in this world in which we live. And then Jesus says these words, verse 43, Not so with you. Say that with me, church. Not so with you. One more time. Not so with you. You see, Jesus says... That's the way you seek greatness in the world. That's the way the world determines who matters and who doesn't and who's significant and who's not. But it is not the way of my kingdom. Another thing about this society is that you would never intentionally go down. You would ne- There's no such thing as downward mobility. You are never like go down the ladder you see, in the Greco-Roman world, to serve or to be a slave, that was going the wrong direction. You would never humble yourself in that way because humility was not a virtue. Humility was not something that was honored or respected in this culture. In fact, humility in the Greco-Roman world was despised. At least in our world, there's, there's some sense that if a person is humble, that's a value, that's an asset, that's something to, to, to look for in a person. Not in this culture. Humility is a completely new concept when Christianity comes along and starts to lift it up. It's a completely countercultural way of thinking. And just to give you a bit more of a sense for the kind of society this was, this kind of society that Jesus and his disciples are right in the middle of, uh, one of the best-selling authors of this time is a guy named Plutarch, and one of his more famous books, more popular books of the day, was a book he wrote called this. How to praise yourself inoffensively. Can you imagine that really? Like can you imagine like having the nerve to buy that? I mean would you I mean would you like sneak it out like it's one of those ones you're ordering online and you're hoping it comes in a box so no one sees it. How to praise yourself inoffensively. In other words, how to lift yourself up in such a way that people don't get too much of a wind that you're lifting yourself up, so you can still do it real subtle like. You know, people do this in our world. People even do this in the church. A friend, a friend of my wife's sent her this, this video, and I think it's called Christian Girl Instagram. And it's all about, and it's kind of a parody, but it's all about how Christians will post pictures online, on like Facebook or Instagram, of their devotional life. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? When you think about it, like, like pictures of their Bible open with highlighted verses in a coffee cup, you know, a little worship CD there. Like their prayer journal laying there. Time with God, hashtag blessed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, are you kidding me? And the guy who kind of is doing the parody is talking about, like, hey, if you get this book, we'll teach you how to take better photos of your devotion time so more people will like your post. You know? It's like, are you. He says, this is just the way to spend time with Jesus while ignoring all of God's commands on how you should actually spend time with Jesus. But that's what we do. It's this, this real subtle way in our world, and we see it kind of overtly online, of how to praise ourselves, how to lift ourselves up, even as Christ followers, inoffensively, real subtly, so people don't get the sense that we're trying to say, look how spiritual I am. All right, that was a little bit of a tangent. But it applies to some of you, so don't put those online. Anyway. In other words, here's the point here. This book shows us, and what we see in this society, the entire goal of this culture was to promote and advance yourself that you might climb the ladder of societal greatness. You would never lower yourself. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Of course they did. That's what this world's all about. No one's listening to Jesus and going, well, that's mean to say. They're just going, yeah, that's how it goes. You climb the ladder higher than other people, and then you lord it over them. You use your status and privilege and relationships and gifts and abilities. You use anything you possibly can to promote yourself so that you can achieve greatness. Not so with you. Not with my disciples, says Jesus. Not with you, Christ followers. Not so with you, Cedar Mill Bible Church. Instead, Jesus says, and now he'll start to give us the way greatness is achieved in his kingdom. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you. Now, pause right there. First of all, one thing that struck me this week as I as I read this passage and molded over and really thought about what God was saying here is that Jesus isn't against greatness. In fact, the whole section is about how to be great. He's very pro-greatness. One of the things I was, I was thinking about is how God actually creates us to be great. Think about the garden. He's creating everything in the world and everything's good, 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 good. And then he gets to humanity. Male and female, created together. And he looks at us and he says, man, that's not just good, that's... Well, he says very good, but very good is sort of like a synonym for great. <laughs> It is, right? It's like a Tony the Tiger moment for, for God, right? Man, they're great. Or very good. Uh, close enough. But the point is, God has created us for greatness. He wants us to be great. That desire that we feel to be great, I believe it comes from the Imago day, The image of God stamped on every single one of our souls. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, the world wants greatness. I want you guys, Christ followers, just be average. Just be mediocre, a life of notable insignificance and no accomplishment. That is what I long for you. No, not the message, not what Jesus says at all. Jesus wants you to succeed. He wants you to strive. He wants you to do your best at work and school and life. He doesn't want you to settle for a lower level of greatness than you were created for. He wants you to settle for exactly the level of, cre- of greatness that you were created for. You see, sometimes in the church, we, we kind of flip this around and we go the other way. And when we talk about humility and sacrifice and serving, we're tempted to think that Jesus is asking us to give up the good life. Like the world offers you the good life and Jesus says, you're a Christian now, you have to give up the good life. Your life's just about pain, suffering, and misery. Right? And we think, okay, well that's the call. That's what it means to follow Christ. No. Friends, sometimes we, I think we get the impression that God wants us to settle for less, but that's not the message at all. God's message is this. The message of the Scriptures, the message of Jesus is the Lexus is settling for less. The position and the accomplishment and the power, when we seek to, when we use those things to seek to attain greatness, that's settling for less. That's a lesser greatness than we were created for. You see, if that stuff, if the greatness that this world offers is what's ultimately great for you, if that's the ultimate fulfillment of your life, then here's the message of the Scriptures. You don't have too much, you have too little. You're not aiming too high, you're aiming too low. Jesus says this, he says, when you lose your life, you will find it. He says, when you trade in this worldly system of greatness for my system, when you start to sacrifice and serve and give your life away, that's when you're really going to start to live. That's when life gets rich and full and meaningful and purposeful and satisfying. Don't settle for less. You were made for so much more than the greatness of this world. You were made for the greatness of God. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. In the kingdom of God, friends, there's a whole new system. There's a whole new way of achieving greatness. What you wear, what you drive, where you live, the job title position you have, that may define your status and your greatness in this world. But if you are seeking to be great in the kingdom of God, there's a whole nother level. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen this. But with like the college and NFL playoffs in full swing, there's a commercial out right now where all these former NFL stars are sitting in this room and they're talking together about what makes a football player great. Like what defines greatness in this this realm of football. Have you seen this commercial? Yeah, some of you have. Three of the players are Herschel Walker, Doug Flutie, and Bo Jackson. And the fourth one is Joe Montana. And, and Herschel Walker starts it off and he says, You know... One mark of greatness for a football player is to win the Heisman. And he says, and I've got one of those. And then it goes to Doug Flutie, who's sitting there, and he says, yeah, I kind of agree. I've got one of those too. And then it goes to Bo Jackson, and he goes, I got one of those too. And they're all looking at Joe Montana, who didn't win the Heisman trophy. And Joe Montana's kind of sitting over by himself on this chair, and he kind of looks at him, there's this long pause, and then he puts his hand up to his chin like he's thinking... Yeah, and on his hand are his five Super Bowl rings, right? And like, like, yeah, Heisman Trophy, Heisman Trophy, right? And he, and he and he looks at them and he says, "Man, guys, what an accomplishment!" Real sarcastically. <laughs> this is just a great commercial. Um, and it's not that achieving success in football is bad. Again, God is not against that. But if that's your ultimate. If that's like what ultimately defines greatness is Joe Montana, and I would say maybe he's a great example for ultimate greatness in our world. Success, victory, fame, popularity, money, he's got it all. That's the highest level of greatness this world can offer. God says, there is so much more. So much more. Because in God's economy, friends, the people at the top, the people whose lives are most significant, the people who are the greatest are those who serve, those who sacrifice, those who don't come to Jesus and say, how can I use you for me? But those who come to Him and say, how can you use me to do more for you and your kingdom? I'm going to say that again. Greatness in the kingdom of God starts when people come to Jesus and don't say, how can I use you to get more for me? but instead say, God, how can you use me to get more for you, to do more for your kingdom in this world? And I guess I have to ask, when you ask that question, when groups of people gather together and start asking that question together and of one another, what kind of culture do you think gets created in that church? whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then listen to this. Listen to the closing verse of this section. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, for even Jesus Himself, for even... The God of the universe come to earth, clothed in human flesh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, this passage tells us that we should understand and approach our lives and what it means to be great in light of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. You see, if this is how God expresses His greatness... If this is how God displays and uses who He is, then what does that mean for you and me? How do we follow that? How do we emulate that? What kind of a life does a follower of that kind of God have? What does greatness look like for His people? And here's what I believe this passage tells us. It tells us that greatness does not come when we seek out places of position or privilege or power or personal preference or prestige. Real greatness isn't when we use our gifts and resources and relationships to elevate ourselves and get our own way. Real greatness, according to Jesus, is experienced in our lives when we use who we are and what we have to serve to serve God and to look to the needs of others. Friends, the question is not how can I be lifted up, but how can I lift up others? Not how what can God do for me, but how can God use me in His kingdom? And as we close this morning, I want to do something a little different. I want us to consider again. What that kind of an attitude, what that kind of a posture, what that kind of an understanding of greatness could do in a church. I'm going to do something a little different here because I was thinking about it this week as I read this passage and I was wondering this question. I was wondering what if the question James and John came and asked Jesus was different? What if their, their, their question, their approach had, had been the right question? What if their motives hadn't been off track or misguided? And I was wondering how that might have played out. Furthermore, how would the the disciples have responded? How, How would the disciples have responded when they got word that James and John were asking about service? So imagine this. Imagine if James and John went to Jesus, and instead of saying, hey, Jesus, what can you do for us? Instead, they had said this. Hey, Jesus, how can we use who we are and the gifts you've been given, we've been given, to make this little disciple troop that you've formed more the group you long for it to be? How could you use us to advance your kingdom, Jesus? Imagine if word hit the street amongst the other ten that James and John were offering themselves up as servants, as slaves, as as those who would set aside their own needs and requests and desires for for the benefit of the kingdom and the group. I mean, what if Peter went to Thomas on the heels of that and said, Hey, Thomas! Thomas! I overheard a conversation the sons of thunder were having with the master and they were asking him how they could help us follow God and advance the kingdom more effectively. In fact, I think I even heard John say that no job was too small. Can you believe it, John? And James, he offered to embrace inconvenience, sacrifice, even suffering in order to make it happen and the kingdom to go forward in our midst. How do you think that attitude impacts the other ten? What do you think happens to the culture of that little community if the attitude of just two men flips over? I have to ask you again, friends, what kind of culture are you sowing into our church? Do you come on Sunday and other times during the week with a posture that says, what can I get from this? How can I use this church, this God, for my benefit, for the building up of me? Or do you come and you say, God, here I am. Here's all of me. Use my gifts, my passions, my abilities, my successes, my failures, my brokenness. Use all of it, Lord, in any way you possibly can to help this church advance the kingdom. What kind of culture are you sowing into Cedar Mill. Let's pray. God, we stand before you and we humbly ask that you would change our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and even our questions as we approach you. Help us to be a community where the culture of of service and serving and others just bubbles to the surface. May it may it run through this place and and, and through our church like a virus, Lord. May it just spread uh, amongst us, and may would may people when they come into our midst say, "I don't know much about those people or their God, but those folks they serve, and I can only imagine that their God does as well." God, that's our prayer that you get the glory for who we are as your people. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.